How easy is it to shut down the power grid and plunge a major city into darkness? In 2010, CBS's 60 Minutes ran a report that the power grid in parts of Brazil had been attacked by criminal hackers. The report suggested not only was this possible in the United States, but inevitable. Here's retired Admiral Mike McConnell discussing this with CBS's Steve Croft. If I were an attacker and I wanted to do strategic damage to the United States, I would either take uh, the cold of winter or the heat of summer. I probably would sack electric power on the U.S. East Coast, maybe the West Coast, and attempt to cause a cascading effect. All of those things are, are in the art of the possible uh, from a sophisticated attacker. Do you believe our adversaries have the, have the capability of bringing down a, a power grid? Uh, I do. Is the U.S. prepared for such an attack? No, the United States is not prepared for such an attack. The CBS story continued, citing President Obama's call for better online security practices overall. We know that cyber intruders have probed our electrical grid and that in other countries, cyber attacks have plunged entire cities into darkness. President Obama didn't say which country had been plunged into darkness, but a half a dozen sources in the military, intelligence, and private security communities have told us the president was referring to Brazil. Several prominent intelligence sources confirmed that there were a series of cyber attacks in Brazil, one north of Rio de Janeiro in January of 2005 that affected three cities and tens of thousands of people, and another much larger event beginning on September 26, 2007. That one, in the state of Espirito Santo, affected more than three million people in dozens of cities over a two-day period causing major disruptions. I wrote about the events in Espirito Santo in my first book, When Gadgets Betray Us, except the story wasn't about criminal hackers. The final report found that the power grid had fallen victim not to criminal hackers, but to soot. Soot in the air from a nearby wildfire. Time and time again, we see these headlines that criminal hackers were behind some of the biggest events only to find out later, and sometimes much later, that there was a more common cause behind the event. Here's CBS's Boston station. Have you noticed lately squirrels are everywhere? Usually it's a problem just for the squirrels, often getting hit by cars. But the critters can also hit close to home, knocking out power. And utility crews on the North Shore had a very busy weekend. It was Sunday morning. I woke up and went to turn the lights on and they wouldn't go on. That's because a squirrel had short-circuited an area of Wilmington. I mean, I see them on the lines all the time, but I never really thought about what would happen. Animal contact is the uh, third largest for outages in our area. John McDonough is the general foreman for the Reading Municipal Light Department, which provides power to Wilmington, Reading, North Reading, and Linfield. He showed us what a squirrel can do when it climbs on one of these transformers mounted on a telephone pole. Many times, a squirrel or any type of animal will be standing here on top of the transformer. He will then reach up to the top here and put his nose right up to the primary bushing tap where he'll create the short circuit. That'll create an outage in the neighborhood and everyone goes dark. I mean, I feel bad. I hope the squirrel's okay, but <laughs> probably not, right? It's not okay. No, no. So, given the common problems of soot and, yes, squirrels, I wondered how resilient is the power grid? I mean, really. How likely is it that someone could criminally hack their way into darkening, say, in the entire west coast of the United States? 
This, then, is a story about why a hack on the power grid that you see in the movies seems unlikely to happen in real life. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. Uh, my name is Jory Van Antwerp, and I am CEO and co-founder here at SinSaver. SinSaver is a uh, OT-focused visibility and detection company. Uh, what we do is provide very small and scalable software sensors that can be deployed on dang near anything. Uh, the idea being to collect, normalize, and detect at the edge and provide that data outbound to wherever a customer or a prospect may need it, their SIM, their energy management system, their historians. What inspired me to do this interview with Jory is that he has a lot to say about the myths surrounding the power grid. And we share common beliefs that the stuff you see in the movies and on TV, the lone hacker who can hold a city of, say, Los Angeles in the dark during a hot summer's day, just isn't believable. I'm very passionate about fighting FUD. I think one of the biggest uh, FUD items, which uh, thank you for having me, uh, that I want to fight is that that idea that you could just hack the grid. Um, it's really just, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and it's hard to describe that without going through a, a little bit of a mental exercise and drawing it out for someone to show them just how many things it would have to take place in, or, in order for that to be a thing. So let's get started. One of the first things we should do is define what we say when we say operator. It is a broad term. I, I'm talking about, uh, a little joke, those dam operators. I'm talking about individuals that are at a dam, for example, in hydro that are running the operation. They're actually monitoring the systems from a control room. They may be going out and, and the technicians involved in repairing anything or in maintenance windows or looking at changing process through their, their HMIs or monitoring through HMIs. They're the individuals that literally keep that process, whether it's water, it's power, sewage treatment running. And how are operators distinct from companies? It's not separate from a company, it's a part of the company. So if we think of, of operations technology and information technology, they all sit under the same umbrella, but the operations technology deals directly with the process and the physical things that are happening, the valves, pressure, or, uh, you know, electrical current, we, like IO, what's on or off uh, in an environment, whereas the IT side is focused more on that network infrastructure, securing that environment uh, and providing an infrastructure for that, that uh operation to, say, backhaul metrics and data on to a control room. And let's define what we mean when we talk about power grids. There is a patchwork of uh, grids, if you will, it's just inside a city. Uh, a grid could be just a, a uh, for example, a substation generally has about 1,500 subscribers, and that would be a grid, is that substation itself. Uh, there are many different grids inside of a city space. And in some cases, they even overlap between two different uh, energy providers. Now, there are grids like that across the entire nation, actually the entire continent, if we talk about North America. And there are points where they connect uh, for shedding and sharing of, of electricity. There are these power grids, both in North America, and they're grouped into roughly three distinct regions. There's the East Coast region, there's the West Coast region, and these two meet somewhere in the middle. Then there's Texas. Texas, it's interesting. Texas is does actually have interconnectivity, um, but it has the ability to disconnect that interconnectivity. Um, but the 
the uh, areas, think of them as regions. And that's not a bad way to think about it, but uh, major regions, uh, yes, it will fall into three. But Texas is um, not as disconnected as one would believe. I'm wondering what the benefits and reasons are into having these different regions in North America. There are many benefits uh, and many reasons to have that connectivity. Buying and selling is part of that, but the the truth is uh, it is hard to spin up energy production. You could have you could have a, a facility that's generating energy and it, it could take two to four hours of startup process before it can be phased into the grid. So if you're in a situation uh, where the locale is having rolling brownouts and you happen to have connectivity with, uh, a, let's say, a neighboring grid or a neighboring state that has an overage of power, that's a great way to assist uh, one, one to another. And it's faster if that overage exists to do that. Jory cites an example where sharing the power makes sense. I live in Arizona and here in Arizona, we have hydro, um, which is surprising since we live in the desert, but it's a, it's a major part of, uh, of our, our power down here in the valley. So when you create a dam, there's of course a lake behind the dam and then there's downstream. In essence, when there is an overage of power, they can actually pump water from the, the stream or the river underneath back up to the lake. Uh, and that can be, there's many benefits to that. Uh, there's reasons to do it environmentally. There's, there's all sorts of things. That costs energy, though, of course, to pump that water back. But for instance, if uh, one of our neighboring states like California was producing too much energy and we could buy it cheaper than uh, um, from a cost effectiveness, if we could buy it cheaper, that pumping back would be worthwhile so that we'd have that water to generate more energy. We may buy that water and pump the water back up so that we can use that to generate energy later on in, uh, at a time where maybe the cost is too high. Um, there's lots of different ways that that benefits many. It's not just the environmental side or the energy production, but even the subscriber, because all of those, all of those fees, all of that cost goes into what we pay to keep the lights on. So we talked about power grids being a patchwork. Well, in 2003, the northeastern U.S. and southern Canada suffered the second worst power blackout in history. The blackout's approximate cause was a downed power line, but also a software bug in the alarm system in the control room of one of the energy plants in Ohio. It failed to alert the operators and caused a cascade of failures until it was appropriately addressed. An event like this was relatively localized and well-documented. Still, it's very hard to say whether we've actually had any online events, any cyber events connected with electrical grids, at least in North America. I would say that this gets into one of the reasons that I I founded the company. Um, Yes, you're you're correct in your statement. Uh, But also on the back of that statement is we don't really have visibility at some of the levels where these outages occurred. So could have absolutely been uh, you know, the, the ever talked about cyber squirrel, you know, it could, it could have been an actual cyber incident. It could have been human error. It could have been a, a, a malfunction. Um, honestly, unless there's some physical evidence today, it's very hard for us to tell. I'm thinking back to the summer of 1996, when there was a problem with the Pacific interconnect, the power sharing system along the U S West coast for about an hour, the system completely failed. 
A brush fire on the California-Oregon border had damaged a 3,600-megawatt power line carrying electricity from the Columbia River generators to Northern California. This triggered a chain reaction of outages that spread throughout power companies serving cities across the West, shutting off power from Portland to Los Angeles. And I remember at the time being kind of surprised that something as basic as that could cause so much damage so quickly. Of course, people were immediately like, well, this is a cyber attack. This is bad. This is terrible. And well, no, it turned out it was something relatively common, rather boring, actually, a downed power line. It's, uh, you know, mistakes happen. We're, we're all human. And uh, surprisingly, the way that these uh, systems are built that you know provide our power is very robust. And uh, we don't have a lot of issues. But when we do have those issues, they're very noticeable. I don't mean to pick on California, but I'm going to pick on them a little bit. Uh, they're not the best at uh, providing their own power, meaning they just can't produce enough power for what they're using. So that interconnect is key to them. In a lot of other, in a lot of other places, there's, I don't want to give out how many, but there's interconnects like that all around the United States. Um, the, those interconnects can help with that balancing between uh, different areas. So as a cyber attack, when we talk about, let's say, taking out the grid, uh, it, you're not going to do that. What you could do theoretically, is take out one of those interconnects. And in the case of California, where they have such a hard time with the demand in their own state from an infrastructure stance, it's going to cause problems. It's going to cause rolling uh, brownouts. You're going to get to a point where, you know, honestly, uh, they may have to turn off service in certain areas to bring stability back up. That could cause a, 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 major, a major issue, but it's not going to, quote, take down the grid. So back to this diversity issue. Having three regions in North America all these power generation companies within them. So if someone were to attack the U.S. power grid, well, it's a lot more complicated than it seems in the movies. We, we should use round numbers. Uh, so I'll, I'll throw out round numbers. Uh, let's talk about North America. So let's include Canada in there because we have interconnectivity as well in, in, in certain areas there. There are 3,300 energy providers. As a nation state, if, if I was really going to affect close to an 80% or a 90% uh, loss of power. I mean, 3,000 you have to hack? It's not just like those systems are connected. Those are, those are 3,300 individual companies. They all have their own, their own designs, their own environments, and their own defenses. That's not an easy task at all. It would be uh, localized, maybe, right? You could, you could attack, uh, for instance, we, we were talking about Texas being uh, relatively disconnected. You could attack Texas and you could affect local grids. Um, I say attack Texas, but I mean the, the energy providers in Texas. Uh, and, and you could affect them, but to what end? Why are we doing this? Uh, is it, it, and that's the question that I always, when I see articles come out, I start asking, well, why would you do that? What is the end goal? What's the outcome that we're searching for in talking about these types of cyber attacks? Um, you know, a lot of times we get spun up around power outages or we get spun up around people being injured, like catastrophic failures. Why would you do that? I'm not saying that people wouldn't, but we need to ask the question. <laughs> so this starts to get to the sweet spot, the reasons why we occasionally have power failures. Yeah, soot. Yeah, cyber squirrels. But for the most part, our infrastructure, it's layered and it's layered for a reason. 
The second one that I like to get on my soapbox about is that critical infrastructure play. Uh, when I say critical infrastructure and I say OT, I'm talking about water, power, sewage, pipelines. I'm talking about physical things that are moving. Um, I, I'm not necessarily talking about um, IoT devices, right? It's very different from OT. And I think as, as uh, the FUD fighting that I like to do is to talk about how different IT, IoT, and OT are, and that we need to keep them separate. Because a lot of times in, in, in the media, in, even on LinkedIn, even in people's discussions, I'm seeing too much confusion. IoT is not OT. The, the, big, the big thing in IoT is internet, internet connectivity. Uh, OT in many situations is meant to be localized. That process is localized. It's not run from the cloud. It's not reporting to the cloud in most instances. It's local. If we take a look at, at, at how we're, we're talking about these things, why, why would it be possible to necessarily hack the grid? Well, you immediately think of connectivity, IoT. That's, uh, there's right there, there's a, dis, there's a disconnect. OT, especially in our energy environments, isn't directly connected you know, to the internet, or we very much hope it's not directly connected to the internet. In most cases that I've seen, that's not the case. We mentioned infrastructure, and that includes water and other utilities as well. And I'm thinking of some attacks on the water districts that we've seen that have included the human-machine interface, the dashboards being accessible from the internet. I, I don't think I've ever seen power grids represented on Shodan. It's always possible to have something either misconfigured or in, in uh, incorrectly connected, um, either through age or accident. Uh, mm -hmm. But traditionally, no, that's not something that you're you're going to see having access to the internet. Um, and in, a lot of times, the ones that I see personally, just in, in my own research, say with Shodan, tend to be more uh, older water facilities or um, oil and gas uh, as well, which you could actually get access to something that is connected on the internet. But th there's been so much focus on this for the last six years that we're starting to see those kind of trend down, how, how many things actually have connectivity to the internet. Um, but to directly answer your question, no, I don't see that in, in electric. Uh, matter of fact, I can't think of an example off the top of my head where I've seen that at all. Uh, not to say it couldn't happen. As we're about to hear, the power grids in general are robust, if not archaic, and layered in many ways. If someone were dead serious about attacking a power grid, there's a lot of preparatory work that would have to be done before they could even get close. We have a lot of things in place that are, uh, our defenders are doing and and each one of these organizations is doing to defend that. So I really want people to understand that um, our operators, they take this really seriously. Um, operators are often uh, forgotten when we talk about visibility detection and security. That um, is focused more on a SOC analyst uh, or a cybersecurity engineer uh, than it is on the operator. And uh, I've heard things which I would like to dispel right now, like operators don't care about security. That is false. What they care about, safety, efficiency, and resiliency. And those are affected directly by security, but they're specialized in how they approach their problems and what they know, their job experience and everything in between is to keep that process running. And one of the areas that uh, I'd like to see all of us in the community and on the vendor sector help with is to start using the data that we're gathering for security efforts to help that operator with safety, 
and reliability and resiliency so that they can be involved in the security process um, because they do care. They absolutely care very much. They want to safely provide you power all the time. They want your drinking water to be safe all the time. And these operators take that very, very seriously. We should give them a little more credit. We don't, we don't give the operators quite as much credit as we should. And even talking about cyber attacks, even really famous ones like Crash Override. Crash Override, in addition to being the handle of the character in the motion picture Hackers, is the name of the malware that was used against Ukraine in 2016. The framework for the malware could have done a lot more damage had it not been stopped early in the attack. It wasn't even that successful. An operator fixed that. Operators are amazing. Let's give them a little more credit. For some reason, almost all of our conversations these days in security touch upon the current conflict between Russia and the Ukraine and the ability of Ukraine to withstand Russia's online attacks. Defenders in the Ukraine are actually teaching us, I think, uh, more than, than we've learned in the last decade on these attacks, just because they're seeing it in real time and they're having to defend uh, in an active way. And they're also showing us where those gaps in visibility are and uh, how, how we can better uh, detect in those environments. We're learning a lot. The tactics are very similar to, uh, the tactics and techniques and procedures, the TTPs are very similar to what we have been seeing in the past, but they're, they're uh, being intermixed in different ways, which has been interesting to see as well. So definitely learning a lot from uh, a broad intelligence spectrum. So in effort to dispel FUD around power grids, let's talk about some of the obstacles that a perceived attacker would have to overcome. Uh, well, every environment is different, uh, speaking majority, there's segmentation. Uh, and when we say that, it's both physical and uh, think of firewalls and DMZs, right? Between each level in, in an operation will be a segmentation. Ha it's not just uh, necessarily uh, getting that that admin password and then getting access to a jump box. Well, then you've got to go three layers deeper. There's a lot of remote execution that's required. Also, something that that we don't necessarily think about that often is um, a lot of these exploits require elevated privileges or even physical access. Um, it's really hard to get physical access in an OT environment. So when we look at those types of vulnerabilities, we can we can very easily set them in a separate bucket where we need to be aware of them, but they're less of a threat than, say, remote code execution that requires no privilege escalation, for example. Um, the, the amount of tiers, I should say the layers, right? It's defense in depth that we have in, in most of these environments. So industrial control systems, they typically use what's called the Purdue model. It's a structural model for network segmentation, and it defines six layers within those networks, even going so far as to specify the components to be found in each of the layers, and logical network boundary controls for securing these networks to protect operational technology from malware and other attacks. This, of course, impacts our ability to always see what's going on at the different levels. We don't necessarily have the visibility the visibility is being stymied by the fact that we have six segmentation layers to go through <laughs> to get into that particular environment. Um, and then once you're in, this is where things get really interesting. If you're not an expert in OT 
in that particular OT environment, it could be one of 2000 proprietary protocols. You may not even know what devices are there. The likelihood of you taking something down is, uh, it's more likely that they do that in doing an IP scan than an actual attack. Uh, it would take a long time to get that far, uh, I guess is the way. And there's a lot of different opportunities uh, that they would be caught along the way. And we talked about devices being out in the field for like 25 years or more. In some cases, those devices don't connect directly to the internet, but they're providing, say, cameras that monitor the LEDs on the front panel of those devices, and those get reported back. Those are IoT devices. I think, um, not to say that it's easier, it's just the connectivity that makes it a little bit uh, more accessible. But in, in the environments uh, that I've seen, especially in, in power, that would never be on the same network as the actual operation. They're different. And they're, they're, they're segmented, in some cases, completely physically. There are two physical lines in different. It's not digital segmentation. So they'll have those, those uh, you know, badge readers on the door. They'll have that security camera. They'll have an alarm system. But those are on what is more of a traditional IT network, and it's separate from the operation side. So given these devices are out in the field already and they're designed to operate for decades, how do you provide backfill connectivity or get the data from those legacy devices? So our technology is a, is a network sensor, but it's a little different in the fact that we're not hardware-based, we're not an appliance, we're software. Uh, and our software is designed to install on dang near anything. So we can sideload on uh, some of the... Uh, um, systems down in those environments. We can, we can install and compute modules inside of a switch. We can deploy via container. We can uh, deploy via an OVA. We're trying to make that sensor easier to deploy in an existing environment, meaning use the infrastructure that is already there. You're not adding to that environment or having to go through a, a maintenance window to have that added, uh, but deploying in that environment. Um, a little of difference between us and some of our predecessors is I don't need a centralized place to send information to, to do analysis. Mm -hmm. I actually do the, the normalization and all the analysis at the edge on that very small piece of software. Um, these environments don't have a high rate of, of throughput on the network. So for 25 megabits per second, for example, uh, one of our our sensors can be deployed on something as small as two cores, two processor cores and two gigs of RAM. Um, storage is as necessary for how, how much history you know, you'd like to have in that particular environment. But um, the idea is to, is to utilize that existing infrastructure. Um, and then we send that outbound. We curate those feeds. Since we're doing all the analysis down at the edge, we curate the feed outbound to something that you need. So if you're using uh, an OT-focused SIM, uh, maybe Dragos or your, and then on the IT side, you're using Splunk or Key Radar. Um, and then maybe you have a historian. Maybe you'd like packet captures in a centralized location. We can send that to all four. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's your data. We should be able to provide it to you wherever it's useful. Again, that's assuming that the devices in the field are relatively recent. In many cases, they're not. In some cases, it can be the age. Uh, these, these solutions, if you will, when they're built for a substation or generation, they're built to run 25 to 40 years and they're built to be supported and maintained that long. And there's contracts and things that come from the providers, whether that's GE or Schneider that, um, you know, actually provide that maintenance and keep that up and running. Uh, but each one of them is so unique 
in how it's designed. It's designed for the physical footprint in which it exists. It's designed for the specific use, if that's natural gas or it's hydro, and it's meant to feed, is it 125,000 subscribers? Is it 150,000 subscribers? Like there are so many things that go into that in itself. They're, they're almost beautiful works of art when we find these things. So if you think about that from what we traditionally think of in, we'll call it security, uh, on, on the, the digital side, a lot of the security that we use today in IT is based on the fact that there are things that are similar in each environment. You know, you have an authentication server, you have an email server, um, perhaps it doesn't even matter what operating system your company bases on, most likely going to use, you know, a, a Adobe Acrobat, for example, or Microsoft Word. There's, there's commonalities that we see in these environments. That's not necessarily the case in OT. Right. With these systems, we're often talking about programmable logic controllers, or PLCs, and real-time operating systems, or RTOS. These vary by manufacturer. So from a visibility stance, they don't all look the same. They're not using the same things. And the devices themselves are meant to run, I'll say, be robust. And that robustness comes from simplicity. It's not uh, that they can't do complicated things, but they take out anything that's not needed. And that's the point. In security, we know that complexity is the enemy of security. The more you have, the more vulnerabilities you might also have. And if you've got something out there in the field, you want it to last. So you provide it with the bare minimum of what it needs. Yori provides an analogy, the all-in-one stereo unit. You think back in the, I'm going to age myself, but if you think back to the days when we used to buy those stereo systems, they'd have CD changers and we'd have tapes and on top would be a record player. Something would break in there, right? Your CD carousel would go down and then you'd be like, well, what do I do? I have to buy a new one. It doesn't, <laughs> it's not easy. Um, these are or more focused, right? So uh, not to, to oversimplify, but um, the, you know, if it's just a cassette player and all it does is play cassettes forward, that's an easier thing to maintain and make robust. And so that's what we've done in these environments. And because of that, you don't have traditional operating systems. You have like a lot of Windows, Linux, Mac, you have real-time operating systems and they're running on very, very efficient, small footprints. So we can't load, you know, uh, EDR at the endpoint. Um, we can't put antivirus on these things. So it's been an area that um, not by choice, but just by the movement of, of security in other directions, we've kind of left them behind. They've been neglected a bit. So now it's time for us to go back and look at, okay, well, if these last for 25 to 40 years, how do we help them right now? And then the next question is, how do we help them in the future? Uh, whether that's rewriting the protocols or better devices or bringing in standard operating systems. That's great, but if you know the substation down the street from my house or your house isn't gonna be updated for the next 20 years, those new devices don't help. How do we help them today? It's visibility. There have been some attempts at standardization. For example, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation Critical Infrastructure Protection, or NERC-SIP, starts to address some of that. Uh, there, there is standardization in how things are reported, um, systems that have to be in place, but those systems could span all sorts of different vendors, right? So, uh, and, and how they're implemented. But they'll define what the physical security requirements are, what the safety requirements are, and how to monitor that environment. When we talk of, of like NERC SIP, for example, a lot of that is around what assets are in the environment 
and ensuring that uh, you have a very good understanding of those assets and how they're interacting with each other so that if anything new comes in or you have an issue, you can easily spot that. But that those assets in there, I mean, those could be six different manufacturers. Those could be, uh, you know, you could have 15 different protocols working on the network in there. And that could be different from one site to another. So in some ways, having a diverse ecosystem like this is actually good for security because homogenized systems, well, they create their own problems. One can also see Jory's point. It's very, very hard to get a bead on what's really happening if you can't talk or listen directly to those devices. I can say that uh, from the devices themselves, there is a little bit of that security through obscurity. And what we see around these environments that we have been able to track and, and uh, I mean, this goes into, you know, predecessors to the company that I've tried to build. We start talking about Dragos and Clarity and Nozomi and, and Industrial Defender and just going back, what we've all seen is a lot of reconnaissance. Individuals are trying, when I say individuals, I mean threat actors, are trying to understand how these environments function. They're trying to understand what uh, disruption they could do. Now that could be nation state. It could be, it, it could be, you know, cyber crime. It's, it really depends, but we're seeing a lot of that probing and not necessarily as much of the direct attacks on the, o specifically the OT side of the house. So with the Purdue model and the diversity, it seems like it wouldn't be worth it for say a criminal hacker to go after a power grid, either local or regional because of the expertise that would be required for those particular systems. They agree. And, and we, we talk about ransomware a lot and ransomware when it comes to ransoming data it is a big deal. But when we talk about ransomware in OT environments, you're going to ransom a PLC that has, you know, ladder logic on it. They're just going to reload it, put the ladder logic back on it. Uh, it's not there's not as much information to actually ransom it could cause disruption. But usually when, uh, you know, criminals are pursuing that, it's all about dollars. How are they going to get the dollars? I don't think in that particular case, it would be necessarily be as helpful attacking the OT side. A lot of the ransomware that we've seen in OT um, is, is really on, on that cusp at Purdue model three and a half or four, where it's, it's IT systems. It's the jump boxes that come into the environment. It's, it's, you know, uh, places where metrics are collected and administration is done. It's not down at the substation, for example. So if the bar for criminal hackers is too high, then it seems a nation state might be able to coordinate the takedown of a power grid or a power plant. Why? Well, it could be used in advance of a kinetic attack on the country or region. You, uh, that was an awesome layup, actually. Uh, that is a, a conversation that, uh, <laughs> you know, we have in, in this, the cybersecurity, uh, the cybersecurity community, especially in, in OT is, is where do you cross that line? And if I am by no means a military strategist, uh, but if I'm thinking logically um, through my own experiences, I can extrapolate if I want to go into um, another state, another, another country, and, and I want to utilize the infrastructure that's already there, you'd want to disrupt that with cyber. You want it to work when you get there. You don't necessarily want to um, drop kinetic payload on it and destroy and have to rebuild. So I think there that the cyber side of things is really around how, how are they disrupting for some other event, as you said, an invasion, uh, 
some other tactic. If it was just we want to, quote, take down the grid, it's much easier to do that kinetically than it is cyber. Nevertheless, U.S. infrastructure is starting to get government-level attention. And that's where the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, within the Department of Homeland Security comes to play. Uh, I think it's, it's, a mixed, it's a mixed bag as far as reactions. Um, I would say that, that CISA as a whole is, has been giving such a broad area to cover. And from a, a, a government perspective, this is something we talk about a lot, um, is the definition of critical infrastructure seems to constantly be fluid. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the work that Dale Peterson does around uh, actually uh, educating and communicating some of the issues that we have. And something that he says rather often, and, and I really do like it, is that if everything is critical, nothing is. And that's an area that we need to be careful of uh, because we see in, this is not CISA's fault, uh, just to be totally clear, but the, the scope for that critical infrastructure keeps changing. So now we have information technology as a critical infrastructure. Information technology and OT are very, very different as we've stated this through this entire podcast. So it's very, to, to start lumping them together makes it harder for defenders to actually focus on what they need to do. Um, CISA is doing the best job they can to provide as much insight and uh, information around vulnerabilities and even uh, experimentation and, and lab projects and red teaming that they can to help us prepare. Uh, but there is a broad scope. And the, the more that we, oh, we, we get away from specialization of OT, the harder it's going to be to sift through for an operator to see. So going from a macro government level to micro individual hackers, I'm, I'm aware of hardware hackers, people who look at smart meters locally and then take them apart to figure out the communications protocols and so forth. There is value in having ICS villages at DEF CON and other conferences. There is value in being able to look at and understand the devices that are being used in our power generation. Uh, it's important that we understand uh, the testing on these things. So I, I, uh, it, it really comes down to the individual uh, and their intentions. Um, there's, there's quite a few uh, hardware reversers that I know that are, are phenomenal and they do nothing but help the community. Uh, and our, our vendors in the space, the OEMs, are really stepping up. I mean, Siemens especially, they're just unbelievably good at testing what they have in house and they're continuing to get better. So that's nice to see. Uh, and, and we see it on the other side as, as they start to produce better and more secure gear. I'd like to thank Jory Van Atwerp for talking about the realities versus the myths around power grid hacking. Too often we fall victim to what we see in the movies as reality, when in fact the real story, I think, in many cases, is much more interesting. The nuances there, they well, you can really nerd out on them. And I think that's good to really learn all the details that are there and to know that there are several layers of defense protecting us from the wannabe criminal hacker. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. And 
Coming up, I've got some great episodes talking about IoT, of course, and also a deep dive into the Patch Act and how it's affecting the medical device industry. I hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss out. 